for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. As we get ready to hear the scriptures read, let's pray this aloud together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. In reverence for the reading of Scripture, would you all please stand? We're going to be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Will. You just put it on the first row. Can you imagine the nerve of Jesus to do this? Can you imagine going into a hospital room, going onto a floor and going room to room and say, do you even want to get better? It's insulting. Or imagine going to a place where people are waiting in line for their welfare check and asking, do you guys even want to be financially independent? Jesus goes to this place known as being a site for healing by superstition, by tradition, by both both Jews and Gentiles goes to this place where unwell people went and he has the nerve to ask this one guy the question, do you want to get well? If we didn't know better about Jesus, we'd think that this is an insulting question. But from Jesus, we know that his intentions have to be better. We see in the story and we see in Jesus a fundamental insight about the nature of God that's so important for us to hold on to. It's that God so respects human choice. He so respects your dignity that he's not going to give you something that you don't want. And it's because Jesus so respects this man who for 38 years has dealt with this, uh, this unhealth. The, the term is generic. We don't know what his problem was, though obviously it, it impeded him being able to walk. Jesus so respected the man that he asked him, do you want what I'm able to give you? Do you want to be well? 
This is probably the third time in five years of our church that I've preached on this passage for like at least a month or a couple of weeks at a time. I've come to believe that this question, do you want to be well, is one of the most important questions that we will ever face in life. Do you want to be well? It's a pivotal question, and how we answer that question really depends on how we see the world. You see, each of us have our own lens through which we evaluate our life experience. We have our own orientations toward the world. A couple of you are going to be frustrated with me because I'm going to ask for your help. I'm not going to ask you to speak, but I am going to ask you to come up here. Bradley, will you help me real quick? Bryson, will you help me real quick? And Will, you've already been up here. Let's just do a two-for-one today. Okay, and uh, let's give them a round of applause. Thank them for being helpful. Okay, uh, Will and Bryson, you stand here. Bradley, would you stand on stage right here? You guys just hang tight for right now. So there are different uh, lens through which uh, we could see the world. Uh, One of the first ones that I'm going to talk about today is the first orientation through which we see the world is what's called the victim's orientation. So, sorry Bradley, but you are a victim. Would you hold this for me? Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to hang it around your neck and make you walk around the lobby or anything. It's a victim's orientation. Now, I want to give a quick caveat. I'm going to use some strong language today, talking about uh, victims and persecutors and things like that. Don't hear me in any way uh, saying what I'm not saying. I don't want to uh, deny the reality of victimhood or trauma or any of the things that people go through, the difficulties that people go through. If you're in a situation like that right now, I would advise you to get help or support from me, from your group, from a counselor. It's a really big deal. But I also want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. Many of us relate to the world through the paradigm of being victims. A victim is one to whom life has happened. Life is happening to them, and they're the helpless casualty of what has happened. And if you've got a victim, you've always got some kind of, sorry, Bryson, persecutor. Would you hold that for me? Will, why don't you go ahead and come over on this side over here? A persecutor certainly can be a person. Uh, someone that is, is impacting you in a negative way. They're being mean to you, but it can be more than just a person. A persecutor can be a, a, a natural disaster. It can be a medical diagnosis. Wherever you've got a victim, you've got a persecutor. Take a big step forward here, but don't fall off. I'll feel bad. Uh, you've, wherever you've got a victim, you've got a persecutor of some kind. And when you've got a victim and you've got a persecutor, this victim is, is always going to be looking for some kind of relief. And so if you've got a victim and you've got a persecutor, you've also got a rescuer. Now this, as you can see, it forms a nice little triangle. Some people call this the dreaded drama triangle. Uh, the victim and the persecutor and the rescuer. Now in this scenario, you'd think that the rescuer is the good guy. You would think that Will Renfro is the good guy, but he is not. <laughs> The difficulty with rescuers is sometimes rescuers find their identity in their sense of self in mediating the relationship between victims and persecutors. They find who they are by intervening. Sometimes we we find that rescuers actually don't respect the victims all that much, which is why they butt in to the, the relationship with the persecutor. They don't believe that they have the capacity to deal with it themselves. Now, the rescuer can be a person who's trying to intervene. The rescuer can also be anything that helps the victim to manage the persecutor. It can be sometimes a substance that helps take the edge off. It can be a habit like, um, I'm sure that there are no men in the room who take 30-minute bathroom breaks just to escape for a little while. Anybody? (laughs) 
It's just a little pause button, a little form of relief. Rescuers can be personal or they can be impersonal. They can be substances. They can be habits that help minimize the effects of the persecutor. But here's what's really interesting is this is a very complicated relationship between these three. Actually, all of the roles are interchangeable. You can have in a given marriage one person who thinks themselves the victim and another they think, themself, uh, they think the other person the persecutor and the other way around. You can have them looking at each other through the opposite lens. She's the bad one. I'm the good one. He's the bad one. I'm the good one. Or you know what I'm trying to say. And what's funny about the rescuer too is you think the rescuer is the good guy here, but the rescuer can often end up being treated or regarded as the persecutor. One of the ways that my whole uh, curiosity about this started was I noticed that there were times when people would invite me into the conflict between a victim and a persecutor. And when I intervened as a rescuer, not respecting their own ability to solve the problem, I found that they ended up always hating me. The rescuer becomes the persecutor in that kind of relationship. We also know it to be the case that those who were victims young in life often become persecutors later in life. All of these roles are interchangeable. Now, I want you to consider a little bit more about how does a victim navigate the world. Bradley, would you turn your uh, poster around for me? Yeah. So the way that the victim orients themselves to the world, and hold it up so everybody can see it here, is the way that a victim relates to the world is they're always focused on problems. It's like the saying, if your only tool is a hammer, all the world is a nail. If you're always focused on what is wrong, what could be wrong, what might be wrong, you're going to find those kind of problems. And, and having a perennial focus on problems is going to affect your inner state. Bryson, would you turn that around for me? And your inner state is going to be constant turmoil. It's going to be anxiety because you're always looking for the next thing that could go wrong. And focused on what's wrong, focused on problems, anxious on the inside, it's going to affect the way that you behave. Well, would you flip that around for us? And your behavior is often going to look like three things. It's going to look like fight, flight, or freeze. Now, this is all a bit esoteric, and victim is a strong word, persecutor is a strong word. Let me give you a little bit of a, a real-life example to kind of tone it down a bit. So one of the ways <laughs> I'm growing, I'm being sanctified, but one of the ways that uh, I experience the drama triangle is in my relationship with my children. I often behave as if I'm the victim of my own children. Can anyone else say amen? <laughs> I sometimes behave like I'm the victim of my own children. Thank God we have four children. I'm so grateful. But I am a sound, sensitive person. And when I, like, I'm like, why is that sticky? I'm like a, a sight-sensitive, touch-sensitive, and like children are all over the place. And so when I relate to the world as a victim, I, uh, my children, as, as, as if I'm a victim, I'm constantly focused on what's wrong. And in my parenting, what it looks like is I'm on edge. And when I'm focused on the things that are wrong and when I'm anxious on the inside as a parent, it affects the way that I attempt to address these problems. Sometimes it can look like fighting. I raise my voice. I want my children to pay attention now. And yelling often feels good. It is, it is rarely ineffective in the long term. Sometimes it looks like flight. It's like I'm going to do one of those long bathroom visits or in the middle of dinner, I'm just going to go stand in the bedroom and catch my breath for a minute. It's flight. Or sometimes it looks like freezing where I just shut down emotionally. That's the worst of all. And I'm like a professional at that. Now here's the difficulty with this is fighting and flighting and freezing rarely solve the problem. 
And so what happens is we live in these kind of cycles, focused on problems, behaving as victims, constantly anxious, and reacting by fight, flight, or freeze. I'll give you another example. You're really, really stressed at work, and so you're just, you feel like a victim of your stress. You're anxious all the time, and so you go to some kind of screen habit looking for explicit images, or maybe you're overeating, or maybe you're coping in some other kind of way to fight the stress, to run away from the stress and the big feelings that you have, or you just shut down emotionally, but this pattern just keeps going in perpetuity. You're expending a lot of effort living in the drama triangle as as a victim, but you're not making very much progress. It's kind of like running on a treadmill. And it's a very, very tiring way to live. Do you guys want to stand up here the whole time or you want to call it for now? Okay, let's thank them for, for standing up here with us. We've got the victim, we've got the persecutor, we've got the rescuer, we've got to focus on problems, we've got anxiety, and then we've got the reaction of fighting, flighting, or freezing. You go back to the story of this man who's been unwell for 38 years, and he's here at this place, the Greeks might have called it an Aslepion, a little place where they would have sought healing from one of their pagan gods. It might have been a Jewish mikveh, a place where tradition said you go here to get healing. This man has been afflicted for 38 years. He's focused on his problems. His persecutor is his medical condition, and he's constantly looking for some kind of rescuer in the form of someone who can, it's, it's a mystery, help him into the water after the waters are, stir, are stirred. Because superstition said that the first one in after the waters are stirred would be healed. For 38 years, this guy has lived in this kind of drama triangle, persecuted and looking for his rescue or feeling helpless. It's a difficult place to be. Always waiting for that other person or that other thing to offer us the relief that we need. And some of us, probably many of us, know what it's like to live as victims of that thing that happened to us. And so many of us know what it's like to be locked in to behaviors and ways of thinking that keep us stuck. We're more comfortable in our chains than in our freedom. It's like the character Brooks in Shawshank Redemption, who had been institutionalized. He'd been imprisoned for so long that once he was given the opportunity for life on the outside, he couldn't bear it. And the character takes his own life. Many of us stay far too long in dysfunctional work situations or we don't, uh, you know, use our own authority to respond to unhealthy family situations. And we're so accustomed to the equilibrium provided by unhealth that we make no changes. We're so accustomed to the equilibrium, the devil I know, so to speak, that we make no effort to change our situation. And this is how people in the victim's orientation often relate to the world. But this is not the only way to relate to the world. Okay, (laughs) you three, would you come be my suckers real quick? Yep, come on. Yep, you know I'm talking to you. (laughs) I saw that eye roll, Nate. Okay. All right, give them a round of applause for getting suckered into this. All right, Nate, come up here. John and Mike will have you guys at the bottom of the triangle there. All right. So I want you to think about this. We had a victim over here. What is the opposite of a victim? If a victim is one to whom life is happening, the opposite of a victim is one who's happening to life. Yeah, Yeah, they're a force, like Nate. Might say that they're a creator. 
The word that I want to use today is they're an image bearer. This is more like a, a biblical way of thinking about it. An image bearer is one who is created to rule, Genesis 1 and 2. And an image bearer is not focused on everything that's wrong. An image bearer is focused on uh, the vision and outcomes that they hope for in life. Now, you go to the story in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2, Adam is an image bearer. So is Eve. And Adam is using his authority to name the animals. He is shaping the reality that he has inherited from God, these raw materials. An image bearer relates to the world by thinking not about the negative things he wants to avoid or she wants to avoid, by thinking positively about the vision and the outcomes that they want to realize. For us, you know, our positive vision of life might be like, I want to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I want to live as one who the, the fruits of the Spirit are just overflowing out of me. You may have a particular calling that you feel the Lord has placed on your life, but that positive vision, rather than the negative avoidant vision, the positive vision is fueling your experience of the world. You're reflecting your image-bearing identity to the world. When you begin to operate fueled by that kind of positive vision, it affects your inner state. And your inner state, Jonathan, if you'll just show that to everybody, is your inner state looks a lot like passion. When you get a vision of the kind of life you're willing to pursue, it lifts you. I have drawn this thing like 30 times in the last six weeks. And I will tell you, every time I draw it and sit at the whiteboard in my office and share this idea with someone and I see the lights beginning to come on, I can see the lift happening and I feel it within myself. It's like, oh, they're, they're being fueled with passion. They're being fertilized with more life and energy to, to pursue that vision of life that God has given them. It makes me think differently about the proverb that says, where there is no vision, where there's no positive you know, way of looking forward, the people suffer, but where there is vision, the people flourish. So if you're focused as an image bearer on this positive vision and you're being filled with passion, it's going to affect the way that you engage in the world. It's going to affect your behavior. Your behavior, if you show that to everyone, Mike, is to take baby steps toward this positive future. You're asking in view of the image, this, this vision that I feel like God is calling me to pursue as I'm being filled with passion, what is the next right step, the next faithful step in following Jesus and stewarding this life that I've been given? So when Jesus asks this guy, do you want to be well? He's asking him a really big question. He's asking, do you desire a version of yourself that's not a victim? Can you even entertain a way of engaging the world that's not primarily through a victim's orientation, but instead as a creator, a co-creator, an image bearer? Are you willing to pursue a new way of being and relating to the world? And the next step is to engage his will by doing the things that Jesus says. And to put his faith that what Jesus says will make a difference will make a difference. Jesus didn't just want to restore this guy's physical capabilities. He wanted to restore his dignity and his authority as an image bearer. He was inviting the man into a new life by joining his will and faith with Jesus' own capacity and willingness to heal. 
And all of it hinges on the question asked by Jesus, do you want to get well? Are you willing to make this step from victimhood back into being a co-creator and an image bearer? Because if you don't, I can imagine Jesus saying, I respect your choice. You guys want to stay up for a couple more minutes? Okay, give me, give me, like, give me like 60 more seconds, okay? <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm sure you guys are sweating too. Now, what's really fascinating about this is this Jesus poses the question, do you want to get well? We don't get a verbal yes from him. That's really struck me in studying the text this year as I've done it a handful of times. Jesus, he didn't get a verbal yes out of the guy. But the text tells us what he did. He responded in obedience. As Jesus told him to do, he got up, he took his mat, and he walked. He took Jesus at his word, and he did the thing that he had not been able to do for 38 years, and he got up off the ground. And it shows me, in part, the power of a well-asked question. I remember, man, I really feel bad making you guys stand up here longer. So go ahead and, and we'll save the other side of it. You guys can just sit down. <laughs> okay, give him a round of applause. It reminds me, it makes me think of the power of a well-asked question. I, it was about six, seven years ago. I was sitting in my office at Asbury and feeling stuck. I'd been feeling, wrestling with a call about church planting. And my friend Todd Craig, who many of you know, was sitting with me. And he said, he asked this question. It was a life-changing question. John, what would keep you from pursuing God's call on your life? And I said, Todd, that presupposes that I know what that is. And he just goes, John. And he looked at me with a good condescending look from a friend who knows you well. John, come on. And so, of course, I go to thinking about church planting, and I start to give the excuses. I had a little bit of this vision, but I'm trying to stop myself from the accountability of taking public baby steps. I said, well, what if, you know, so-and-so doesn't want me to do it? And he said, okay, so you're going to let that stop you from pursuing God's call on your life? Well, when you say it like that. Or what about this extenuating circumstance? And he goes, so you're going to let that keep you from pursuing God's call in your life? Well, you know, if you put it like that. Began to entertain the shift from victim, waiting for someone else to hand me the golden opportunity, to stewarding my authority as an image bearer and taking baby steps toward that future. When we refuse to orient ourselves to the world as a victim and embrace our image-bearing identity, things can begin to change, often just in us at the very beginning. We still have difficulties. We still have reality that we have to deal with. But as image-bearers, we don't primarily think about those difficulties as persecutors. We think about them instead as challengers. Now, there can be several kinds of challengers. There can be constructive challengers. You've had constructive challengers in your life. Uh, sometimes if you want to get, you know, physically fit, you've had a, a coach or someone who's pushed you beyond your comfort zone to make you stronger. Or you've had a boss or a manager or a friend who just pushed, 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 but in a way that, that, that made you grow stronger and you knew that they cared about you. Sometimes we have deconstructive challengers. Now, those are people who are, they, they kind of feel like a harmful presence in our life, or at the very least, they feel like kind of a burr in our saddle. Sometimes they can be really quite in the wrong, or bad people, or mean people. 
But for the person who has adopted this image bearer's mentality, way of relating to the world, we think about constructive and deconstructive challengers as giving some kind of gift to us. They always give us an opportunity to increase our own authority and capacity and trust in God. They always present us opportunities to grow in wisdom and authority and Christ-likeness. We don't look for rescuers who are going to come and take all of the pressure off of us so we don't have to exert any effort. Instead, we're looking for guides and coaches and encouragers, people who can help equip us to grow in our authority to be able to face the challenges and the difficulties of life. Now, Jesus was so much more than just a guide or a coach for this man, and he's so much more than just that for us. Jesus is our Savior. He is our healer. He is our Lord. And on his cross, he has liberated our will to begin to exercise our authority. And through his resurrection and the gift of his spirit, we've been endowed with the same power that raised him from the dead. What he did for this man and what the Lord Jesus does for us in asking him the right question at the right time is he gave him an opportunity to increase his own authority and capacity by joining Jesus in the miracle. What Jesus did in that moment was he gave this man an opportunity to increase his own authority and capacity by joining Jesus in the miracle. He so respected him that he asked the question, could it be for you or for, for ones of us in the church that you've been waiting for a miracle and overlooking the fact that you have a part to play in it? Go back to the example of my children acting like a victim driving home, imagining the noise, the mess, the sticky fingers, asking, why is that wet? I don't know. I'm anxious in advance. I'm gearing up for a fight. I'm gearing up to freeze. I'm gearing up to remove myself. What's instead a way of Jesus inviting me to participate in my own transformation? Instead, driving home as an image bearer, I'm thinking not about the negative things I want to avoid, but I'm asking, what kind of environment do I want my children to grow up in? What kind of presence do I want to be as their dad in our house? And rather than just trying to avoid negative feelings about them, I want to be a positive, influencing, modifying presence in our home. And thinking about myself through those lens does give you that kind of lift. And then the question becomes, all right, Lord, what is the baby step toward me being that kind of positive, non-anxious, calm, modifying, fun, loving presence in our home? I'm not just praying that God would take away their noise. That's childhood. And that's childish of me. Instead, I'm asking the Lord to increase my own capacity and authority to deal with difficulties. In response to Jesus' question, the man caught the vision. He believed and he acted in faith. He stood up, he picked up his mat, and he walked. I've come to believe that the shift from victim to image bearer, from victim to creator, is, is of equal measure difficult as moving from death to life. Look at Jesus' words in the same chapter. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, like this man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. To move from victim to image bearer, victim to co-creator with God requires a kind of repentance. The catechism of our church asks, what does it mean for you to repent? To repent means that I have a change of heart. Turning from sinfully serving myself, where I'm the, the center of the universe, waiting on everyone else to care for me, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ, then the most important line is, I need God's help to make this change. I need God's help, and I have a part to play in turning. Did you catch the words of Jesus? It says, the Son has life in himself, and those who hear and obey, those who hear and believe will live. Probably some of you read Seth Godin. He writes a daily blog. He said, being stuck is reasonable. That's precisely why you're stuck. Every decision you've made, all the status quo you're holding on to, the fears you have, they're all reasonable. This is a mature, apparently safe series of choices. Congratulations on being wise and careful. The only way to get out of the spot you're in is to do something that feels unreasonable, that's unreasonable in the short term, that a similar person in a similar situation would say is unreasonable because if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't be stuck, would you? If you truly want to get unstuck, if you want to move to higher ground or do something more worthwhile, the first question to ask is, am I willing to be unreasonable, at least for a little while? Rival narratives about what it takes to be well in our age. I believe that the road toward being well is taking Jesus at his word that he is indeed the way and the truth and the life. That the Jesus way forward is actually the best way forward for human beings. It may feel offensive. It may feel objectionable, culturally, you know, reprehensible, unreasonable. But I believe that the Jesus way forward, taking Jesus at his word, that he's the way and the truth and the life, and spending the rest of our lives learning to live as citizens of the kingdom of God is the way to learn to be well. And say yes every time we hear the Spirit saying, do you want to be well? Not everyone is going to find out that this is true. Not everyone is going to take Jesus up on his offer and say yes to his question. You know who will find out if this leads to life? It's the unreasonable. It's the weirdos. This is Jesus two chapters later. He answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out for themselves whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Do you want to be well? It's up to us. The offer is on the table. Do you want to be well? I want you to consider in what ways have you capitulated to life as a victim? Very real, very tragic things happen to each one of us. 
You know, but there's the, the, the two people to whom equally terrible things happen, and they have very different outcomes in life. In what ways have you capitulated to life as a victim? How are you seeking relief via rescuing behaviors? In what ways have you abdicated your authority, the part you have to play as a woman or as a man created in God's image? Are you trying for all of your, you know, to all your best efforts to live a reasonable, controllable life? How's it going for you? Are you trying to live life on your own terms at the expense of being well as a citizen of the kingdom of God? And do you sense the Lord Jesus inviting you into something new or something different? What kind of vision for life do you feel Jesus giving you or returning to you as an image bearer? My prayer for us as a church that we would be people who relentlessly pursue the Jesus way of being well. Who embrace that other people may think that we're stupid. They may think that we're like out of line with the spirit of the age. But we're like, I just want to be well. Remember in John chapter 6 last week, Jesus turned to the disciples after that whole flesh and blood thing. And he goes, you guys going to leave too? And they said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. We want to be people who are well, who take Jesus at his word, who not only live like a kind of negative, avoidant life, but are passionately pursuing the positive and the bright vision of life as citizens in the kingdom of God. And I pray that God would give us the grace to say yes to his offer, do you want to be well, and the courage to stand up and pick up our mat and walk. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to the table today, we're asking for your grace to respond in faith. Apart from your grace, there is no health in us. So would you so regenerate our will and restore our capacity that we can say yes to your offer of cooperative grace? Pray that you'd give us a freedom to say no to a controllable life, the courage to venture into the unknown, and a deep curiosity that causes us to seek after Jesus and live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Everybody said, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.